Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. What is cancer? Cancer is an umbrella term used to define more than 250 types of neoplastic diseases. Healthy cells are transformed into malignant cells upon exposure to certain etiological agents. Viruses, such as the HTLV virus and the Epstein-Barr virus, chemicals, such as tobacco and benzene, and physical agents, such as radiation. And then there are the familial patterns of carcinogenesis, familial polyposis, breast and prostate disease. Controlled by oncogenes, it begins with a mutation of DNA in a single cell. Normally during mitosis, cells will reproduce one identical cell. Mutated cells do not reproduce like normal cells. These cells divide with, with no correlation to the physiologic requirements of the surrounding tissue and then grow very rapidly, first invading surrounding tissues, then metastasizing via the lymph system to the bloodstream, and then to distant sites. For, for example, prostate goes to the seminal vesicles and then to the bones. How are t cancerous tissues classified? Carcinomas are tumors of epithelial tissues which cover or line surfaces in the body and arise from ectodermal, mesodermal, or endodermal embryonic layers. Sarcomas are tumors of the connective tissue that arise from the mesodermal embryonic layer. The prefix adeno refers to tumors arising from glandular epithelial tissue and squamous for tissues arising in squamous epithelial tissues. What is meant by staging or grading of cancer? Staging describes the extent and anatomic spread of tumor at a given time and is a guide for prognosis and treatment. Usually, the higher the stage, the poorer the prognosis. The TNM system is used for all malignancy but lymphoma, leukemia, and multiple myeloma and is based on clinical and pathological information. T refers to the primary tumor site and then the numbers zero to four describe the extent of the tumor. For example, T0 shows no evidence of a primary tumor which may be seen when there is evidence of metastatic disease with no evident primary site. TIS for carcinoma in situ showing no invasion of regional tissues. T1 through T4 indicate progressive tissue size and extent. N refers to nodal status with N0 showing no nodal involvement to N4 showing increasing involvement of regional lymph nodes. M refers to metastasis. M0 showing no sign of metastasis to M3, which indicates distant metastasis, single versus multiple sites, and the degree of organ involvement. Grade classifies a tumor on the histopathologic characteristics of the tumor. It assesses the aggressiveness of the tumor and is described as a degree of differentiation or lack of differentiation or anaplasia from the normal cell. The less a cancer cell resembles the normal cell of tissue origin, the greater its degree of anaplasia. The American Joint Committee on Cancer recommends a grading classification which ranges from GX to G4. The higher the grade, the poorer the prognosis. GX, the grade cannot be assessed. G1 is well differentiated and resembles the normal cell. G2 is moderately well differentiated, showing some anaplasia. G3 is poorly differentiated, showing more anaplasia. And G4 is undifferentiated and highly anaplastic and with metastasis. What are the symptoms of cancer? In early stage disease, 
patients may be asymptomatic. Because early detection is crucial to increase the survival rates, the American Cancer Society has developed a list of nonspecific early signs and symptoms for the public to be alert for. They are any change in bowel or bladder habits, a sore that does not heal, unusual bleeding or discharge, thickening or a lump in the breast or elsewhere, indigestion or difficulty in swallowing, obvious change in a wart or mole, and nagging cough or hoarseness. As the disease progresses, symptoms will be related to organ involvement, and all patients usually experience some degree of altered metabolism, resulting in anorexia and weight loss and alterations in the immune system. How is cancer diagnosed? A number of tests are used for screening and diagnosing cancer, and these will be presented according to site, but the ultimate diagnosis is made by biopsy. Mammography is used to identify suspicious breast lesions, and ultrasonography is used in differentiating cysts from solid tumors. Fine needle aspirations, FNA, of either palpable or mammographically demonstrable lesions often provides enough tissues for diagnostic purposes. When this fails, open biopsy is necessary. For esophageal, gastric, and colon lesions, barium studies and CT scans provide information about structural alterations, while endoscopy affords a visual look and obtains tissue for diagnosis. For biliary tumors, ultrasound provides a good outline of the biliary system, but endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography, known as the ERCP, remains the best study for obtaining biopsy specimens and demonstrating alterations in the biliary system. Percutaneous transhepatic cholangiopancreatography is done to determine if the common bile duct is involved. Tumor markers for GI malignancies are the carcinogenic embryonic antigen, CEA, which is most useful in following patients for recurrence of colon cancer, and the CA199, which is useful in pancreatic disease. For detecting prostate cancer, men with a suspicious digital rectal examination and or a prostatic-specific antigen, known as the PSA, over four, usually will have random prostatitis done under transrectal ultrasonography. CT scans and MIRI are not useful in identifying lesions in the prostate. When lung cancer is suspected based on x-ray findings, the first step is to obtain pooled specimens of sputum for cytologic examination. Bronchoscopy for centrally located lesions provides for visualization, washing, brushing, and biopsy. Peripherally located lesions are biopsied by percutaneous needle biopsy. The pap smear, colposcopy, and biopsy are the primary diagnostic tools for cervical cancer. Endometrial cancer is diagnosed by endometrial biopsy or endocervical curetting during a DNC. Ovarian cancer is generally diagnosed from biopsies and washings obtained during laparotomy. Ultrasound and CT scans are useful preoperatively in evaluating the potential size and location of the mass. Lymphomas are diagnosed by lymph node and bone marrow biopsies. Leukemia by examination of the peripheral blood smears and bone marrow biopsies and multiple myeloma by bone marrow biopsy and serum and urine protein studies. When and how should women perform self-breast exam, or SBE? The American Cancer Society recommends that all women over 20 perform self-breast examination, or SBE, 
one week following completion of the menstrual period or on the first day of each month for women in the menopause. There's a basic three-step procedure that should be followed to self-examine the breast. In the shower, examine the breasts during bath or shower by, because the hands glide easily over the wet skin. Fingers should be fat flat, move gently over every part of each breast, use the right hand to examine the left breast, the left hand for the right breast. Check for any lumps, hard knot or thickening, scaliness or dimpling. Next, stand before a mirror. Inspect the breast with arms at the sides. Raise the arms high overhead. Look for any changes in contour of the breast, swelling, dimpling or scaliness of the skins. Change in the nipple or change in the nipple. Then rest hands, rest the palms on the hips and press down to flex your chest muscles. Turn slightly to one side, looking for any changes in the outline of the breast area. The left and right breast will not exactly match. Few women's breasts do. Regular inspection shows what is normal for you and will give you confidence in your examination. Next slide down. Examine your right breast by putting a pillow or folded towel under your right shoulder. Place the right hand behind the head because this distributes breast tissue more evenly on the chest. With the left hand holding the fingers flat, press gently in small circular motions around an imaginary clock face. Begin at the outermost top of your right breast for 12 o'clock, then move to 1 o'clock and so on around the circle back to 12. A ridge of firm tissue in the lower curve of each breast is normal. Then move in an inch toward the nipple, keep circling the exam uh, examination area and examine every part of your breast, including the nipple. This requires at least three more circles. Now slowly repeat, repeat the procedure on your left breast with the pillow under your left shoulder and the left hand behind the head. Next move to the nipples. Squeeze the nipple of each breast gently between the thumb and index finger. Any discharge, clear or bloody, should be reported to your doctor immediately. Next, using the thumb and index finger, examine the tissue between the breast and the arm this is also breast tissue. And finally, with the arm resting on a firm surface, shoulder height, examine the underarm area. With fingers flat, use the same clockwise sequence used in examining the breast. When should mammography be done? The AC recommends, ACS recommends an initial mammography at age 35, every other year after age 40, and annually over age 50. Prior to the study, no powders or deodorant should be applied to the chest or axilla, and the woman should be told the room will be cold and she may feel some discomfort as the breast will be compressed in the equipment during the study. What is the prognosis for someone who has breast cancer, and how is it treated? One in nine women will develop breast cancer. The incidence in women 35 to 39 has increased more than 50% during the past 30 years and the incidence has increased in each of the five-year age groups between 25 and 54 years of age. Prognosis depends on many factors, the degree of invasiveness, the tumor size, axillary nose status, histologic grade, and estrogen receptor status. Women with tumors that are less than one centimeter in size, histologically well differentiated, and containing estrogen receptors have the best prognosis. On the average, 40% to 45% will reoccur. More than 50% who do reoccur do so after three years. 50 to 60% will be clinically evident within five years of treatment, and 98% will have evidence of metastasis within 10 years. Small tumors may be treated with lumpectomy and no dissection, following by followed by radiation therapy to the surrounding breast tissue, and adjuvant chemotherapy and or hormonal therapy depending on histology, estrogen receptor status, and cellular DNA content. 
For larger tumors, a modified radical mastectomy consisting of a simple mastectomy and lymph node dissection is the treatment of choice followed by adjuvant chemotherapy or hormonal therapy, again depending on histology, estrogen receptor status, and cellular DNA content. These women often have the option of having the first phase of breast reconstruction done at this time. Tell me about cancer of the cervix. Cancer of the cervix ranges from pre-malignant lesions known as cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, CIN, most often seen in women in their 20s, to cancer in situ, most often seen in women in their 30s, to invasive lesions seen most often in women in their 40s and over. The most effective tool for case finding is the pap smear. The ACS recommends that all sexually active women and women over 18 have pap smear tests and pelvic examinations and annually and after three or more consecutive, consecutive normal annual examinations, the pap test may be performed less frequently at the discretion of the MD. Treatment may involve cautery or cryosurgery, laser surgery, cone biopsy, or meat, depending on the age of the patient and extent of the disease. Please tell me about cancer chemotherapy. Chemotherapy treatment for cancer includes anti-neoplastic agents, hormonal agents, organ-specific agents, and biotherapy. Anti-neoplastics exert their action on all rapidly dividing cells and do not distinguish between normal and abnormal cells. Cells which normally divide rapidly are the mucous membrane lining the GI tract, the respiratory tract, the urinary tract, the bone marrow, and the hair follicles. The expected side depend on the agents used and include bone marrow suppression, specifically neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and erythrocytopenia during the nadir period, alopecia, neurotoxicity, urinary tract toxicity, and hypersensitivity reactions. Neutropenia usually occurs seven to 10 days after treatment. Protective precautions to treat infection are instituted when the white count falls below 1,000. Patients should be instructed to avoid crowds and people who are ill, to practice good personal hygiene, and to stick the use of flowers and fresh fruits and vegetables. Often, colony-stimulating factors, biotherapy agents, are given to promote earlier marrow recovery of neutrophils. Bleeding precautions should be instituted when the platelet count falls below 50,000. Nursing assessments include inspecting for petechiae or ecchymosis on dependent extremities and for bleeding from the mouth, the nose, the urinary tract, the rectum, and intravenous sites. To prevent spontaneous bleeding, prophylactic platelet transfusions are usually given when the count is below 20,000. Supportive nursing management during the nadir includes maintaining the integrity of skin and mucous membranes, rectal suppositories, rectal temperatures, indwelling catheters, and intramuscular and subcutaneous injections should be avoided. While platelets are low, the patient should use only electric razors for shaving, emery boards for filing fingernails, and a soft bristle toothbrush or sponge stick for cleansing the teeth. Eliminating foods that are irritating to the mucous membranes lining the oral cavity and daily use of stool softeners to prevent straining will help prevent bleeding from the GI tract. Reduction of circulating erythrocytes decreases the available hemoglobin which supplies oxygen to all body tissues. Reduced oxygenation is responsible for the common complaint of fatigue seen at diagnosis, during treatment, and many times well to remission. Transfusions of packed red blood cells are usually administered when the hemoglobin falls below 8 grams and the hematocrit falls below 25%. One unit of packed red cells will raise the hemoglobin 1 gram. Nursing care includes assessing for paleness, dyspnea on exertion, 
or at rest. Dizziness, headache, irritability, and especially for tachycardia and tachypnea, which are signs of early cardiac hypoxia. Patients receiving transfusion should be closely monitored for any signs of allergic reactions such as fever, chills, flushing, or hives. Hair loss is painless, temporary, and may produce partial or complete baldness, and the emotional impact may be devastating to the patient. Within two to three weeks after beginning therapy, the patient usually notices hair falling out and spontaneously uh, on the pillow, in the hairbrush, or on the comb. Ideally, a wig or hairpiece should be purchased prior to hair loss to facilitate a good match for color and style. And having the hair cut in a short uh, style may further help reduce the trauma of hair loss and perhaps delay the onset of hair loss. Hair will return within about six months after treatment has been completed and by that time a nice hairstyle should be in place. When stomatitis or mucositis occurs, it is manifested by an infl inflammation of the mucous membrane lining the oral cavity within five to, days, five to seven days of treatment and usually persists through the nadir period until just prior to neutrophil recovery. To minimize irritation of the oral cavity, the patient must stop smoking, stop drinking alcoholic beverages, and stop using any alcohol-based mouthwashes. Prophylactic oral hygiene should include brushing the teeth after meals and at bedtime, using a soft toothbrush and a non-abrasive toothpaste, flossing with unwaxed dental floss once a day as long as there's no bleeding from the gums, and thorough cleaning of dentures and bridges. If dentures or bridges sit poorly, their use should be avoided during this period of time. Many chemotherapy agents have emetogenic potential. Chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting may have both physiologic and psychological components. Antiemetic therapy is aimed at blocking the neurotransmitter sites to minimize stimulation of the chemotherapy trigger zone in the medulla and the true vomiting center. A new serotonin antagonist in combination with dexamethasone, decadron, has significantly reduced nausea and vomiting without producing dystonic side effects. The drug most commonly associated with neurotoxicity is vincristin, Oncovin. As treatment progresses and doses accumulate, the patient may develop decreased ten deep tendon reflexes, paresthesias of the finger and toes, peripheral neuritis and autonomic neuropathy producing constipation, impotence, and urinary retention, which usually resolve over a period of time after the drug is withdrawn. L-asparaginase is a drug most frequently associated with type 1 allergic reactions. Hyperpigmentation reactions are generally local reactions occurring more frequently in black than Caucasian patients. Neo changes are seen with cyclophosphamid, cytoxin, doxorubicin, adriamycin, and danorubicin, cerubidine. Most are self-limiting and will resolve in time. Extravasation from vesicants such as doxorubicin and vincristin, and irritants such as atopicide, VP16, and carmustine, BCNU, can produce serious damage to subcutaneous tissues. Standard care for these patients usually includes the insertion of a right atrial catheter or vascular access device, which minimizes the risk of problems developing from extravasation. Hemorrhagic cystitis is associated with cyclophosphamide, and patients should be advised to drink at least eight glasses of water the day prior, the day of, and the day after treatment. A relatively recent avenue of treatment includes the use of biological response modifiers, these include colony stimulating factors, the interferons, and the interleukins. Most of all, these side effects will resolve over a period of time after completion of treatment. Tell me about radiation therapy. 
The goal of radiation therapy is to achieve maximum tumor kill while minimizing injury to normal tissue. This is called therapeutic ratio. There are two types of radiation, external from a source outside the body and internal, Reiki therapy, from a source placed within the body. With external radiation, the total dose to be delivered is divided or fractionated into daily doses to deliver a dose sufficient to prevent tumor cells from being repaired while allowing normal cells to recover before the next dose. This determines the length of treatment. Great care is taken to prepare the patient for treatment. During simulation, the tumor is localized, the volume of area to be treated is defined, and structures to be blocked and protected from radiation are identified. Radiation can directly affect the RNA and DNA, or indirectly by affecting the medium surrounding the molecular structures within the cell. While oxygenated tissues are more radiosensitive than poorly oxygenated tissues, and the parenchyma of some cells are more radiosensitive than, other, than others. For instance, lymphoid tissue, reproductive tissue, and parts of the digestive tract are very radiosensitive, while muscle, brain, and spinal cord are relatively radioresistant. To improve the therapeutic radio ratio, radiosensitizers may be used with some tumors to increase tissue radiosensitivity and enhance tumor cell kill. Radioprotectors are agents used to protect non-tumor cells, thus promoting repair of normal tissue. Hyperthermia is used to achieve a synergistic effect, increasing cell kill and therapeutic ratio. Side effects of radiation therapy are related to the area of the body being treated. The most common are fatigue and anorexia due to waste products of tissue destruction. Temporary hair loss is expected in the treated area, and if high doses of radiation are given, the loss may be permanent. Skin reactions are common, ranging from erythema to wet desquamation. Treated areas are very sensitive, and sun exposure should be avoided during treatment, and following treatment should be well protected from the sun for at least a year. Another skin problem is radiation recall. This occurs when patients receive certain chemotherapeutic agents after receiving radiation therapy, resulting in darkening of the skin in the irradiated area. Hats, hair pieces, wigs, and scarves can be used until hair returns. The scalp usually can be shampooed with a mild baby shampoo. During treatment, the irradiated skin should be kept dry, avoiding powder, lotion, creams, alcohol, and deodorants. The patient can gently bathe using a mild soap and tepid water, patting the skin dry. Care should be taken not to wash off the markings prior to indelible tattooing. Erythema and dry desquamation can be treated with a light dusting of cornstarch. Wet desquamation can be treated with a thin layer of A&D ointment and covered with a non-stick dressing. Mucositis affects the mouth, oropharynx, and esophagus when these areas are in the treatment field. Alcohol, tobacco, spicy foods, acid foods, and extreme temperatures should be avoided. If eating is painful, topical anesthetic rinses and gargles are given prior to meals of PRN. Xerostomia, dry mouth, results when the salivary glands are in the treatment field and usually is accompanied by altered taste sensations. During treatment, little can be done to help this other than to keep the mucous membranes moist and perform frequent mouth care. Artificial saliva may be helpful. Radiation esophagitis causes difficulty and pain on swallowing, resulting in a reduced food intake. Anesthetics can be helpful and blenderized food or nutritionally balanced commercial products may be used to maintain nutrition. Mild to severe diarrhea occurs when certain areas of the abdomen and pelvis are treated. These patients should follow a low residue diet, drink plenty of fluids, and know that the unpleasantness will resolve when treatment is completed.
Radiation proctitis may occur in men being treated for prostate cancer. Bone marrow suppression occurs when large volumes of active bone marrow are irradiated, pelvis, spine, and long bones especially. Weekly blood counts are done, and if counts drop too low, treatment may be postponed for a few days, or packed cells or platelet support may be given. Isotopes commonly used for external, I'm sorry, for internal radiation are iodine, phosphorus, and gold. Sealed sources are cesium and radium. Safe care of these patients is based on time, distance, and shielding. Exposure is directly proportionate to the time spent within a specific distance. Shielding from gamma rays is accomplished with a 6 millimeter of lead or 10 millimeter of concrete shield. Since these offer protection for more visitors uh, than the healthcare providers, the amount of radiation exposure each individual caring for these patients accumulates is accurately measured by radiation counters. Bedside care activities should be limited to only the necessities and the patient needs to have a clear understanding prior to treatment of those restrictions. Any questions regarding management of patients receiving brachytherapy should be directed to the institution's radiation safety officer. What should I look for when assessing a patient's burns? Well, immediately post-burn, the very first thing we need to do is stop the burning. But we'll assume for a moment that the burning has stopped, that you don't need to douse water on them or get them away from the burning source. The next greatest priority is, as always, airway, airway, airway. Is the airway open? Is there soot in their nose or mouth? The next crisis is, are they breathing? We need to know the rate, the rhythm, the depth. If you have a chance to determine their breath sounds, that's a good thing to do, too. Uh, you need to know, do they have soot in their nose? Do they have soot in their uh, uh, sputum? If, do they have a burned face? The reason I put this with, with breathing is if they've got a burned face, they very well may have had such heated air around their face that they inhaled it into their airway, and they may have seared their lungs or their airway, which will tremendously increase the risk of pulmonary burns. Now, if they've got an open airway and you know they're breathing adequately, you check and make sure they're circulating adequately, their heart rate, blood pressure, um, distal pulses. Do they have adequate pulses in the extremities? Uh, you need to bear in mind that ex burns of the extremities can impair circulation to the hands and to the feet, so it's important to assess that. Then, quickly, what's their neurological level? And this is essential because, contrary to what many of us might think, if the patient has exclusively a burn and you are seeing them immediately post-burn, there should be no impairment of consciousness. If they are unconscious, that means there's something else going on. That means they inhaled carbon monoxide. That means they got a bonk in the head while they were trying to get out of the fire. That means who knows what else, but there's something wrong. You can have whole body third degree burns and be completely awake if there's nothing else wrong with you. That sounds macabre, but it's important to know. You need to assess the burn depth. Um, there's a, a burn that's red and dry and has no blisters, and that's called superficial partial thickness or first degree. There's the red moist burn that has blisters. That's called deep partial thickness or second degree. There's the skin that's white or leathery, almost black in some cases. That's full thickness or third degree. You need to determine how much of the body is covered with uh, burns. And for that, you use the rule of nines, which is extremely, extremely difficult to explain verbally. Or you can use a London Browder chart. The easiest way to cheat if the burn's not large is the surface of the patient's palm is equivalent to 1% of their body surface. 
So you can sort of use that to estimate how big the uh, burn is. What are the primary problems of the burn patient in the first few hours post-burn? Well, airway, breathing are big problems. You need to monitor for shortness of breath and for strider. If you suddenly hear the patient struggling to breathe, you need to act immediately to get them uh, an artificial airway, probably an endotracheal tube, because they promptly will, they will frequently promptly deteriorate on you. They may have a pulmonary injury resulting in pulmonary edema, but shock is extremely common following burns. The burn damages the capillaries and the tissues. The capillaries leak fluid into the interstitium, um, and then there's a loss of blood volume resulting in shock. They get a decreased blood pressure, increased heart rate, decreased urine output, and decreased level of consciousness. Pain is a big issue if they have a partial th thickness burn, and they hurt a lot. Full thickness burns frequently don't hurt because the damage is so complete that it's destroyed the nerve endings as well. What are the main treatments? Well, in the immediate post-burn period, you sort of ignore the wound, ignore the burn. Make sure they've got a good airway, intubate them and ventilate them if necessary, and by that I mean arrange for the patient to be intubated. Um, they may need to have someone perform an escarotomy of the chest wall if they have a burn there to free up the chest to move. Uh, the scar, the, the, the burned area can become so tight they can't move their chest wall. They need lots of IV fluids. We need to keep their urine output up. We need to give them lots of volume. Um, you calculate their IV fluids by a formula such as the Parkland or Brook formulas. The Parkland formula is 4 ml of crystalloid IV fluid like lactated ringers or normal saline per kilogram per percent body surface area that is burned over the first 24 hours. For many people, it's a colossal amount of fluid. What about care of the burned tissue once the fluid balance is stabilized? There's a great number of approaches to managing the burn wound. Um, our goal is to prevent infection and close the wounds. A couple of different techniques. One is an excision technique where you simply, and I say you, I mean the team, the surgeons, cut off the burn. They just take a blade and cut the burn off. Uh, and then graft the site immediately. Uh, as you can well imagine, if the burns are very large, there can be significant blood loss because there's a lot of, of just open tissue when the burns are all cut off. There's an open technique where uh, you don't cut off the, uh, the burn, but you put a topical antimicrobial on it and no dressing. There's a closed technique where you put the topical antimicrobial on and you put a dressing on, which has to be changed two to three times a day. Whatever technique you're using, when it's time to change the agent, or at the time, uh, the agent, I mean the antimicrobial, um, or at the time of admission, the patient may be placed in a whirlpool. Um, you put an antibacterial agent in the water. There is a significant risk of cross-contamination between patients with this technique. Um, and so some people swear by it, some people don't, but it's a great way to clean the wounds and get a good assessment at the time of admission. You put them in a whole body whirlpool called a Hubbard tank. The major topical antibacterials are silver sulfadiazine, which is a wide-spectrum agent. It's easy to apply and painless. There's silver nitrate, which is inexpensive, unlike silver sulfadiazine. Um, it is wide, uh, silver nitrate is wide-spectrum. It has poor penetration into deep tissues, and it turns everything black. It turns the sheets black, the dressings black, the wounds black. Uh, and it can result in profound electrolyte disturbances. Another major agent is called mafidine acetate, trade name sulfamylon. It's a wide-spectrum agent. It's extremely effective. Its wound penetration is good. However, it's painful to apply, which is 
shall we say, adding insult to injury. Uh, and it has some profound metabolic effects and can result in acid-base abnormalities because it's a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. What about grafting? Grafting is a way to close a burn that's a full thickness burn that will not close by itself. Um, the most common graft that's used for burns uh, is the split thickness skin graft, where the, the donor site is clean and free of infection. Take the patient typically to the operating room and, and anesthetize them under general anesthesia. And then the donor skin is harvested. To do that, we take a dermatome, which is just a fancy knife. And some old-fashioned plastic surgeons didn't even use a fancy knife. They used a rather inelegant blade and just saw it away. And you, they, they, they saw off the top half of the dermis. And since the uh, dermal layer, as you may remember, undulates up and down below the epidermis, if you'll hit it just right, you take off the top half. You leave dermal cells behind to generate new skin here, and you take new dermal cells to the new site to create new, uh, a new um, covering for that area. Um, if it's being put on a cosmetically important area, it's, it's grafted it as whole sheets. Um, if it's being put in a cosmetically unimportant area, they'll typically take the graft and perforate it with a several hundred tiny little slits so that they can pull the ends of it and expand the size of it. It, it ends up looking like a, a mesh. It's, it's what's called to mesh, a split thickness skin graft, which allows them to cover a larger area than the area of the donor site. So you can have a relatively small donor wound and a much bigger area covered by the uh, graft. The graft is applied to the recipient site and then sutured or stapled in place. The donor site is usually covered with an occlusive dressing, such as uh, one of those vapor barrier dressings like Opsite. The donor site almost always hurts more than the uh, pressure in the recipient site. Um, the recipient site gets a gentle pressure dressing to ensure good contact between the graft and the, the donor, the recipient site, because it, it needs to have contact to to have those cells adhere and grow and build blood vessels. Usually, that uh, recipient site is immobilized with a bulky dressing to prevent movement and disruption of the graft versus site interface. For wounds other than burns that need uh, fat or muscle in addition to the, the skin, we can do uh, things such as a rotational flap where adjacent skin and subcutaneous tissue are cut on two or three sides or, or three or sides and one side's left attached and then they're lifted and swung over the area where there's a problem tied down there and then the area that remains is undermined and the skin's pulled over and sutured closed. And that's called a rotational flap. And the problem with that is you can have ischemia of the flap after it's been moved. So it's critical that you assess circulation in the, um, the flap after it's been turned. So, so far someone talked about cancer, which is good. Uh, James talked about burns, but I'm surprised he didn't uh, tell us the types of burns or the stages of the burn, right? So types of burns or stages of the burns would include this. And it, this is an NCLEX alert because it was on the NCLEX. A superficial burn or a stage one burn or phase one burn involves the dermis. It's superficial, uh, it's painful, there's no edema, there is redness, 
There is blanching with pressure. This is a stage one burn. Another type of burn is a partial thickness burn or a stage two burn. This, uh, the person would present with blisters. It will be moist and it will be extremely painful. I remember when I was a kid, I was making a uh, big pot of soup and I opened the lid and all the steam came out of the pot, right? onto my arm and I had a huge painful blister from my wrist to my elbow that's how big it was so this would be a stage two burn or a partial thickness burn a full thickness burn or stage three burn is dry discolored and no pain these types of burns are either black or white and there's no pain involved because they've actually burned the nerves. So they feel nothing. So this is on the NCLEX. Remember, superficial, stage one. Partial thickness, stage two. Full thickness, stage three. I'm even go, going to go as far as to say uh, there is a stage four. And that includes, uh, it's a full thickness burn. It includes all the layers of the skin, but it also includes tendons, ligaments, and even bone. This would be a stage four burn. Now we're going to listen to Anne, and she's going to talk about immunizations. I do have a list of immunizations on my Pinterest page under, I believe it says immunizations, right? And I'll add to whatever she says on as I need to add. Now let's go back to the lecture already in progress. What are the principles of emergency treatment for the child who has ingested a poisonous substance? There are many types of poisonous substances that can be ingested. These include, but are not limited to, drugs, household products, garden supplies, plants and berries. Clinical symptoms will depend on type and amount of the substance ingested. The most important principle in dealing with the poisoning is to treat the child first, not the poisoning. You must remember this all of the time. Emergency treatment includes, first, the assessment of the airway, breathing, and circulatory status, which is known as the ABCs of, of management. If it's necessary, resuscitate and stabilize. Many children do not need this, but it is always the principle of, first principle of treatment. Here you will also establish a patent airway and provide measures to restore circulation. The second part of emergency treatment is to identify the ingested substance. Try to determine what, how, when, and how much was ingested. This is often very difficult to do. Save all vomitus for analysis, save any containers that the parent should bring, save any clothing, for instance, where vomitus might be, be on that clothing. The third principle is prevention of absorption of the substance. Here it is important to remember a number of different principles. Induce emesis unless contraindicated. And these contraindications would include things such as caustic materials. This would be something such as Drano, lye, some petroleum products. 
Also, a contraindication is if the child is comatose, experiencing seizures, or has does lack a, a gag reflex. The drug of choice is Serpivivacac. This is an over-the-counter drug which is sold in all drugstores. Administer 10 to 30 cc's depending on the age of the child and follow with 100 to 300 cc's of water. Obviously, this part can become difficult, especially for small children. Serpivivacac can be repeated in approximately 20 minutes if there is no response to this initial dose. It is associated with very few side effects. Gastric lavage may also be used to prevent absorption. This is done by passing a nasogastric tube, lavaging and aspirating gastric contents. Lavage is indicated for patients who are comatose or convulsing. Activated charcoal will sometimes be administered after vomiting has occurred. The charcoal minimizes absorption of the toxins by binding them on its surface. If Ipecac has been administered, make sure that the activated charcoal is given 30 to 60 minutes after vomiting. Otherwise, the Ipecac will be inactivated by the charcoal. Make sure you remember this piece of information. The fourth, fourth piece of emergency treatment is to hasten elimination of the toxin. A cathartic such as magnesium sulfate might be ordered to hasten elimination. In some circumstances, promoting diuresis and increased urinary excretion will aid in elimination of this substance. If known, provide specific treatment for the type of substance ingested. This is known as the antidote for that substance. There are very few of them known to be specific for each each substance that might be uh, ingested, but always be thinking, is this a possibility? Carry out symptomatic management. Number six, provide prevention education to parents. Teach parents about safety practices that will decrease chances of accidental poisonings. Educate the parents as to use of drugs, proper labeling, storage, and handling of household products the importance of child-resistant safety packaging, as well as any other things that will be very specific to their own particular child. During teaching, always remember to incorporate anticipatory guidance related to the developmental stage of the child. How would these principles be applied to the child who has ingested aspirin? Aspirin toxicity is dose-related. Toxicity begins at approximately 150 to 200 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. The peak effect of aspirin is in two to four hours after that ingestion. Aspirin has a direct stimulatory effect on the respiratory center, so the initial symptom that you will see is hyperventilation. This in turn causes a respiratory alkalosis followed by increased metabolism and metabolic acidosis. Also, you must remember that aspirin is rapidly and completely absorbed by the stomach. So, if an ingestion occurs, the initial treatment should include induction of emesis, but again, remember that the first thing always that you will be doing is that ABCs of treatment, looking at airway, breathing, and circulatory status. If the child is doing well, then you were going to go into the next phase, which is induction of emesis. 
This can be done with Vivipac or by gastric lavage, and this is to remove any unabsorbed drug from the stomach. This should be followed by activated charcoal to further diminish aspirin absorption, but must be given within two hours of ingestion to be effective. Further therapy is symptomatic management. Interventions are directed towards maintaining hydration, stabilizing electrolyte and acid base balance, and reducing hypertension if it is evident. Parent education should be directed towards sharing information about effective measures to prevent poisonings. These should include items such as the following. Keep all medication out of reach of children in the cabinet with a child-resistant lock. Again, parents need to be guided to be thinking about what are the developmental characteristics of their child. For instance, a two-year-old is very, very curious and will go looking for things to get into. The second, avoid keeping excess medications in the house. And also, increase parental awareness of products that contain aspirin. For many, many products on the market that you can buy across the counter contain aspirin. Do not refer to medicine as candy. Learn first aid for ingestion events and keep the Poison Control Center phone number readily available. Again, renew always think about reviewing developmental characteristics of the child. Okay, so far we've discussed um, burns, poisoning for children, and cancers. But I want to discuss immunizations because immunizations have changed over the years. So on the next MP3, immunizations.